Thinking and listening to place emerges as a thematic of where and how together, a collection of texts published on Disclaimer and edited by Justin Myber. These works consider technology and humanity as being in the world, rather than as tacit mediators or observers of it, with the writing investigating the processes by which mediation is obscured, or how presence is made difficult. There's also a knowing that we need to find ways to come together, to listen and act. Working out how is tricky and multi-layered. Queering rituals, dismantling hegemonies, and the struggle of activism are grappled with. But joy, and sometimes cheekiness, finds its way into these processes too. This coexistence of the serious and the lovely or ridiculous runs through a lot of this collection, and also underpins Audible Edge's curation. The featured artists include those from 2020's cancelled Audible Edge Festival, curated by Tonelist in Borloo, Perth. Jim Denley, as part of the group Sounding Together, and Jasmine Gafond individually talk through the ideas and processes behind their respective pieces. Meal Up, Moonrise, Bone Run Up, Sunrise, and Surveillance Lifestyles. So my name is Jim Denley. I'm a resident of the Gadigal lands and the Eora Nation over here in Sydney. And um, Sounding Together is kind of was put together by the Toneless Collective in West Australia, based around Perth, I guess. So, yeah, last year Toneless asked me to go to Perth and kind of join in with them on, on the Sounding Together project as kind of a mentor. So Annette Krebs, who's a German musician, and myself were kind of the mentors, I guess because we're older and experienced. And and I guess they felt that we had something, something to impart. I mean, I question that whole thing, like, especially around improvisation. As soon as you have some sort of hierarchy you kind of run into weird sort of problems with it. So I guess we spend most of our time desperately trying not to be too mentorish. If you're going to kind of co-create with people on an equal level, you can't be imposing some sort of hierarchy on the situation, but inevitably, perhaps because we're the kind of visiting artists from Germany and Sydney and, and we're kind of set up as mentors... There is that sort of aspect of kind of understated hierarchy in the work, which, I mean, I actually, actually find really problematic. Not, not to the point I'd say, no, I don't want to do this thing, but, like, that's what I mean. You sort of spend a lot of time trying to sort of undermine that um, or to joke about it. The two main pieces on the website... And all three pieces, actually, because there's the, the piece on the boat. I mean, I, I guess they're exercises in playing in highly specific, highly charged places. So at Boronup, we drove into this forest, perhaps one and a half hours from the coast where we were staying, pre-dawn, to kind of be there for the sunrise. So you're not only sort of going to like a very special place... You're also sort of going there at a particular time of day, which is liminal or something like uh, And the meal up was at a beach quite close to where we were living. 
but the same thing like sunset and moonrise. So the end of the day, the moon coming up over. It's the one spot on that coastline in Western Australia where just the way the beach is situated, you watch the moon rise, which is a very strange thing because we should be facing west. But this funny little beach on a peninsula, we're actually sort of facing east and so we could see the moon rise. So I guess there are exercises in specific times of day which are quite special, special places. I mean, the Boronup, you could sort of say there was no choreography about the work, like there was no sort of score or... We just went to a place with the intention of playing, so I guess you could say that's some sort of score of, of sorts. And we just sat there for a while listening and then started playing. So that was very simple. The other one on the beach is kind of more complex because we did sort of plan that to some extent in that uh, some of the musicians who happened to be singers and vocalists all kayaked in from another beach around the corner. So the mics were sort of set up on the beach and then you hear this sort of chorus and, and a kayak sort of coming in on the waves. So it was actually quite a dramatic um, and, I mean, I've heard that the piece criticised for that, that it sounds quite sort of choreographed and a bit dramatic. Specifically, I'd say in, in the beach recording, the Milop recording, this sort of the dominant player in the audio musical <laughs> event that um, exists as in its digital form is probably the waves on the sand. We kind of come and go and we get close to the microphones and further away and we play various things and we don't play things and people sing and they don't sing. And they laugh and, you know, there's all this stuff going on and through it all there's this sort of relentless rhythm of the, the kind of gentle waves on, onto the sand which kind of underlies the whole, that whole recording and kind of gives it a, its sort of basic rhythm. And, um, and the Boronup Forest 
It was dawn, so there's a bunch of birds all doing their thing. And in West Australia, there's a particular type of cockatoo that was, it was pretty close to us. And like I use a phrase from Merleau-Ponty, the French phenomenologist. He sort of talks about the awesome birth of vociferation, which I guess he's sort of talking about this act of giving voice or like the voice being created. Um, so it kind of harks back to some sort of birth voice that we all give. But maybe at the dawning of a day, there's this, the cockatoo sort of sing out. And I think this was a young cockatoo, so it sort of had this, that sort of sound that something sort of finding its voice. So to me, when I listen to that recording, we're all, we're all kind of desperately trying to do our stuff and be authentic in place or something, trying to be there and, as I said, sort of caring for the, the forest through this music. But the birds sometimes kind of put you in your place and, and they're so comfortable with being in that place. Their sounds can't be sort of taken out abstractly and extracted from that place. Whereas I think we, we tend to think of music as this thing that human beings make, which kind of be, can be abstracted from the world. And I guess what we're trying to do is get close to the cockatoo's inherence in, in place. I mean, whether we do it or not is, is questionable. Like, sometimes I listen to it and I sort of go, yeah, it's getting there. Like, it's, I guess that, that's a hard thing to judge. Maybe in 10 years' time, I can look back at that recording and sort of go, no, 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 we were, we were there. Like, there's that sort of huge question, like, can you go to an environment that you don't know particularly well? You don't know the words for anything. You've never tried to eat there, like never tried to gather food there. You don't know all the animals. And then you try and make music without any sort of knowledge. But um, there's that word that Stephen Feld uses, acoustomology, which is like our knowing the world. So it's a conjoining of two words, acoustic and epistemology. So our epistemologic knowing of the world through sound. Like if, if you don't know that much about a place, how deep can that be? I mean, in the article, I, could, I say, 
you could say that the most respectful thing to do would just be to shut up and just to turn your hard disk recorder on and kind of just listen to the world or just to sit there and listen to the world like without recording it. But I guess in that in act of that diving in like, with the birds, you're joining in with them. Like, um, so you're not sort of saying I'm separate or I'm alien. You're sort of saying, well, as naive as I am, I'm going to try and, and maybe, you know, maybe we fail to be really authentically in place. But maybe if you keep doing it enough, like it kind of gets better and you know more about the place. I've been thinking about this sort of practice rather than being playing outdoors, which kind of sounds a bit negative to me, like uh, you have to define this thing by something that it isn't. It's outdoors. So I've been trying to think of it as in weather. And I guess anything to do with weather is about change. I mean, weather is change. So I think improvisation kind of is kin to that sense of change. Like weather and improvisation are kind of linked in that regard. Like improvisation is kind of all about change. Some of the most interesting improvisers give you that feeling that they've stripped away a whole lot of kind of cultural baggage and created something which is theirs. By taking the music outside in Australia or in weather in Australia, it's very confronting in that regard. So you kind of bring your preset ideas from other genres into this environment and you go, well, why? You know, like, it just doesn't fit in this context. Or it just sounds weird. I mean, why is this person sort of playing like they would in a, in a kind of a noise venue or a classical music concert or an art gallery, but they're under a tree in a forest in Western Australia? So it's kind of very exposing in that regard and it makes you really sort of question... What do you kind of bring to this place? I guess we're talking about expression. Like, so the way we walk through the forest is expressive and it kind of brings this sort of history of how we walk, you know. I mean, we, we walk in with our boots and shoes, whereas people 250 years ago would have walked in, you know, bare feet. That sort of makes a huge difference. And... The way we move in the space is expressive of who we are and our histories and our culture that we're from. So I'm not sure that music isn't some sort of boot that we wear. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, I guess there's also the point that listening itself, you can see as a form of expression. I'm going to listen to this or that, you know, I'm going to find this important or or that important. I, I could sit there in the forest and disregard the sounds of the four-wheel drives that are coming over the hill. You know, you, you can filter stuff out. Like, um, So in a sense, listening and being aware of the world is already kind of an expressive act. It says something about you as an individual or the culture that you're from. And so then to sort of take that into a... that listening into sounding. I mean, the, when we think about the word sounding too, like we use that word as a way of listening, like you sounding into the 
the ocean depths as a way of sort of sending sound to the bottom and map, kind of mapping the ocean. Or if, if we think about ultra scans using sound to sort of get images of fetuses in wombs, you know, like we use soundings all the time to kind of perceive the world. So I think that those two things, listening and sounding, are in my mind are sort of conflated a bit or yeah it's probably still worth having the two words they work together pretty well i think like and they and they can be interchangeable to some extent yeah i think there's something of a paradox in that the actual works are very collective it's just a bunch of people and other beings and energies in the environment all kind of playing together and some of those uh, beings and other energies are non-human so then in the presentation on on disclaimer there's Jim's writing his bit Noemi's writing her bit uh, you know Eduardo's writing his bit so it's suddenly kind of fractures into sort of individual statements, Annika's drawings, which is maybe the nature of the art forms that, as opposed to sort of music, which is such a social art form in, in general. So, yeah, this, that's kind of paradoxical, but it, I guess, I mean, there's quite a lot of discussion amongst the group as to when it, whether any of these recordings were worth sharing. We did a bunch of recordings, most of which we didn't share like there's every day we were kind of recording hours of material but these three recordings in particular I think we all kind of gradually over a period of time all felt yes this is something that could be shared and this is something that could maybe go to band camp I mean I think the thing to say about the sounding together crew or posse or mob uh, is that that the scene in Perth has this sort of lovely collective togetherness at the moment. So it's a very kind of positive communality about what they're doing there, which as an outsider, I kind of, you see that and you recognise and it's quite a special moment because I don't think these things last for too long it sort of takes quite a lot of generosity and people move on and should, you know move state or country or or go outside of the the music scene or, or so sometimes these moments are quite sort of fragile but when they occur and you know that you can think back in Australian music history to other sort of quite special sort of communal moments and I think they are really special moments of some major sort of cultural significance because it's usually a sort of a grassroots thing. A bunch of people all kind of think it's a good idea to to be communal. There's a lot of energy that goes into it and you're usually best off putting your energy into self-promotion, not the promotion of communal, you know, collectives and Collectives are kind of messy, and but I think that's why I think the work is really beautiful and interesting is it has this sort of 
beautiful com- communality about it at the, at the moment, and and that may be a fragile thing. It may not exist in five years' time. So when that happens, I think people should honour it and get down and listen to it. <laughs> My name's Jasmine Giffond. I work primarily with electronic sound across music and art contexts. So that includes playing records, performing music live and making sound installations. And in the last seven years, I've also made work that sonifies data generated by surveillance technologies, such as facial recognition tech, Wi-Fi and GPS networks, so global communication and surveillance networks and internet cookies. And the general idea behind those works is to produce an audible presence for ubiquitous yet intangible technological infrastructures that impact, track and mediate our everyday experience, whether it be browsing the web or walking around with a smartphone. Well, surveillance lifestyles refers to the myriad of ways in which everyday surveillance is woven into the fabric of our daily lives, particularly through portable smart devices or personal assistance or um, the Internet of Things. So many devices or home security systems, you know, are connected to the web and extracting personal data. So constant web connectivity and the ways in which we passively or actively participate in mundane surveillance. And I thought... It would be interesting to um, interview Roger Clark for an Australian context since as a technologist he has also been active as a privacy activist in Australia since the 70s and is known internationally for coining the term data valence. Already in 1988 when the means to electronically survey with computers was emerging but also just before the World Wide Web had even been invented And I was also aware that Roger had done research into Australia's contact tracing app. So um, the interview provides a conversational techno-historical background to contemporary surveillance cultures or lifestyles and brings us up to date with the 2020 pandemic context. 
And the other two recordings are experiments with the Listening Back browser add-on. So the Listening Back browser add-on sonifies internet cookies in real time while you browse online. And I've used it for live performance and installation, but not as a means to record musical pieces. So the recording of the sound of cookies while booking a plane was an experiment in using the Listening Back add-on as a compositional tool outside of a live performance context. And the jam with Julia Reedy on guitar and myself playing cookies with the add-on is the very beginning of a process where I would like to further explore together with Julia the potential of the add-on as a musical instrument. And besides being uh, creative experiments, both audio pieces, for me, provide an example of a surveillance lifestyle. So booking a plane ticket online or um, playing cookies with a friend. Um, and that kind of puts me in an um, uneasy position in a way to be creatively playing and having fun with a surveillance technology that I'm also highly critical of. And that highlights for me the nature of surveillance lifestyles in that they are fun or even at times empowering to participate in. And it opens up the question for myself of how do we as artists navigate a critique and playful engagement with a potentially dangerous technology. So one of the parameters for the listening back add-on is actually the cookie data I have access to, and this is determined by the browser API, so the application programming interface. And so that's the data that Mozilla or Google make available to third-party developers. And this includes whenever a cookie is inserted onto our computers, deleted or updated, but not each time a cookie, for example, is read by the browser. And the programmer I worked with, um, Max Breeden, found a way to hack in and access the data for each time a cookie is read by the browser, which resulted in an extreme increase in sound being generated by cookie activity, especially when a web page is loaded. So I decided to stick to the officially available data as there is already an extraordinary amount of cookie activity generated through web browsing just from each time it's inserted, deleted or updated. And I wanted the add-on to be available for anyone to use via the Chrome or Mozilla web stores. So what was interesting to me from the beginning um, during that development phase was the extent to which technical processes are hidden even from tech-savvy programmers. 
and that they are in fact well-kept business secrets um, and that the web environment is controlled through technical protocols determined by big tech and I was entering into a creative relationship with major tech corporations and the data broker industry. They are in fact my co-composers and yield a certain amount of control over artistic outcomes. And so the process of sonifying cookies highlights how our experience with the web environment is um, controlled by corporate interests. Max also uh, suggested using the tombra.js library for generating sound in real time on the web. So through this library I could design sounds by selecting between various waveforms such as sine wave, saw wave, triangle wave or noise and um, effects that I could combine in various ways and adjust the parameters of uh, such as reverb and delay and EQ and phaser and chorus and flanger. And I decided to highlight the dominant online trackers by designing a signature sound for their cookies and um, the most commonly visited websites, uh, such as Google and Facebook, which they're the two largest online trackers, but also um, Amazon and some of the flight search engines that are particularly active because they're dependent on revenue generated from data collection and some of the prevalent third-party advertisers and data brokers that are used by multiple websites. And then I chose uh, four uh, different scales that performers or users can switch between. And you can also uh, change the octave of the cookies or you can sort of silence them or turn them up. So it's possible to sort of engage a kind of diagnostic mode of listening if, if, if you want to. And the reason for sticking to a relatively simple harmonic structure is because the cookie ecosphere is an uncontrollable environment. The same web page can sound different from one day to the next and um, there are potentially many layers of sound being generated at once. So from previous sonification projects I found that dissonance tends to make people sort of tune out or disengage. And I tried to make it possible to audibly differentiate between cookies by creating different textures. And interestingly, I found out during my research that according to studies into human audition, that we are more likely to notice difference in timbre than pitch. I mean, it was initially developed for an installation and performance context. So the sound was to be played through a full range sound system rather than computer speakers and I was interested in exploring an immersive experience to highlight the ubiquity and prevalence of data extraction infrastructures in which we are already intangibly immersed. So through the use of the full spectrum of humanly audible sound, including very low frequencies, and through the use of multi-channel sound systems, the aim was to provide through sound, a bodily felt connection to abstract data flows. But from the beginning, it was also intended to be accessible for anyone to use on their personal computers. And therefore, a browser add-on was the most practical means for making the sonification of cookie data accessible to anyone with a networked computer and either the Firefox or Chrome browser. So, like I said, I designed signature sounds for the most commonly used web domains. And there is an interface that was initially developed for performers to play cookies 
during a live performance and then further developed to encourage a diagnostic listening to cookies and also for long-term usage. So there are over 38 million cookies circulating the web and our personal computing devices. And um, I found during the development phase as well, some people kind of understandably found it annoying to constantly hear electronic data sonification while browsing the web. I mean, I personally have mine still constantly on, but um, through the interface, if there's particularly active sites that I often visit, I will um, just turn down their cookies. Uh, so there is the sort of possibility to, to modify it for long-term usage or you can, you know, change the pitch and I find lower pitches are less intrusive. But definitely the intention was that people could just listen to it at home because I think it's sort of important to be able to experience it in your home or in an impersonal environment and sort of feel how kind of intrusive or invasive these technologies are. And I guess in general for creating an awareness but also potentially like with the sort of jam that I had with Julia, I mean the idea there with tuning to cookies is to develop it more from a purely sort of musical or compositional perspective and not necessarily aim it for people to be able to hear that that's a Facebook cookie appearing again, but to sort of tweak it from, uh, though as an instrument you'll never be able to master it like other instruments because the ecosphere is just constantly modulating. It's impossible to, to keep track. I mean, it's something I'd like to sort of go into more, but the way I've used it so far, I've often performed with different performers and then we do sort of plan out like a score of what websites we will access in like an order. But then, like I said, different sites sound different every time, so it's not possible to completely control, which I find interesting because um, you do give up agency to the companies that are programming these technologies. So it sort of highlights, I think, that tension and those relationships that we're actually constantly having when we're browsing the web. The more we are connected to the web and our things are connected to the web, the more opportunities there are for the extraction of personal data and the COVID tracing apps have provided more opportunities for governments to collect data. Um, and according to Roger's research, like due to the unreliability of Bluetooth technology, the contact 
tracing up in Australia was essentially useless, yet a lot of data has been collected. And I was actually just reading an article yesterday. It's written by Greg Barnes for Michael West Media. And according to his research, um, I'll just quote from the article, governments at all levels have collected unprecedented amounts of data on every Australian thanks to the pandemic. Your every movement is being tracked from your trips to the local supermarket to your interstate travel or via apps that state and territory governments have introduced over the past 12 months. Uh, The information in this database is a treasure trove for law enforcement and security agencies. When governments were last year urging all Australians to cooperate and download the COVID apps and travel passes, many of us warned that this presented a danger to our fundamental human right of privacy unless there were strict protections. And then um, Barnes goes on to cite examples of state police in Australia accessing the databases generated by COVID tracing apps. Um, For example, in Western Australia, police access the SAFE WA app introduced for COVID tracing purposes on three occasions to gather intelligence for criminal investigations. To be fair to WA Premier Mark McGowan, his government is legislating to prevent this from occurring again. What also emerged last week was that Western Australia police refused to accede to a government request not to use the app database for intelligence gathering. And in light of the WA revelations, it was confirmed that police in Victoria and Queensland can also access COVID tracing app data. A warrant is required, but the threshold for obtaining one is low. So my position is that if the tracing apps were successful in stopping a health pandemic or having a major sort of positive impact in conjunction with strict privacy laws, then it could make sense. But if, according to Roger's research, they were essentially redundant, then I really feel like we need to ask why a government's turning to tech for solutions to a health pandemic, particularly if it's not, you know, working. This recording was produced by Mara Schrettweger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognise that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. 
Liquid Architecture is an Australian organisation for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more, head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.